Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Safe Hands Artist Series was created to raise funds for people facing food insecurity. Later we'll hear how profits from artwork sold will be used to fight world hunger. In another partnership, the Atlantic Contemporary has provided generous space on the museum's campus for dancers and choreographers of dance canvas. Ahead of the upcoming outdoor performances, the directors of both groups will tell us about amplifying diverse artistic voices. To begin, an affable musician takes us through his creative process. One way to find out is the title of a new album out today from singer-songwriter Mike Kinnebrew. The recording is from a live show he performed at Eddie's Attic. He joins us now via Zoom. Mike Kinnebrew, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's an honor to be with you. One Way to Find Out is an intriguing title. Please tell us about its significance. Well, I, I wrote the song for a friend who was, who was debating uh, whether or not to change his, uh, his, his town, leave the town that he loved and buy another house and and just agonizing over the decision. And, and, uh, and it was one of the first songs that I wrote for the new album. Maybe you knew, maybe you stay. You can lead in with all your heart or you can turn and walk away. Maybe you sink, maybe you swim. And it's just about those forks in the road, those watershed moments when you're looking left and you're looking right and you can't tell. And there's only there's only one way to find out. Um, you don't there's no guaranteed outcome. Um, but at some point, 
you've got to take a step. And, and I thought that was fitting for the album because with, with, with a music career and, and trying to pursue one, there's no telling if, uh, if anyone's going to be interested in the art that you create, uh, where it's going to take you. There's no telling when you sit down to try to create something, if you will beat your head against the wall for two hours or if song will come like, like clockwork, like magic. So with, with so many things, and especially with music, there's only one way to find out. And uh, so it was a fitting way to, uh, I, I, at that time, I also had these shows at Eddie's Attic that was attempting to sell out two shows. And I had only ever sold out one by the skin of my teeth. And I didn't know if I could tackle two, two shows uh, or not. And uh, again, it was there's only one way to find out. You, you dive in and, and say a prayer and hope for the best. And, and I think you're better for it, no matter how it lands. Mike, does the song have added meaning now in the age of COVID-19? I, yeah, absolutely it does. I think I, it, that that show that the album was recorded for was, uh, it was the last live show that I've played. Um, and I guess that was January 31st, so about eight months. And uh, so all the songs have added meaning, but especially this one, when whatever level of uncertainty I thought life had when I wrote that song, <laughs> it has exponentially more uncertainty now that I'm living in, in the age of COVID-19. And when an album is taken directly from a live recording, there's an element of vulnerability. You're completely exposed. It would have been easier to record something in a studio. Why did you want to go with this live recording? The, the honest answer is I had recorded one time in the studio about 10 years ago and did an album and, and I saved up all my money and I went out to Nashville. And by the time I had enough money and enough songs to record it. I was, I was so sick of those songs. I, I didn't really enjoy playing them anymore. And uh, when I got to writing the songs for this album, I started writing in in uh, July, and and wrote all the way up until the show. And so they the songs were fresh. It was the first time I was able to perform them for a live audience, and I just wanted to keep the creative process going. And so capturing it then rather than capturing it five years down the road felt like a more natural way to to finish the process out from from writing to practicing to playing to recording to releasing it so it, it all still feels very fresh and alive to me hmm. the relatability of your lyrics is central to all of your songs would you walk us through your songwriting process? <laughs> it's not pretty. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, I used to I used to sit down with a laptop or, or or some kind of a device if I needed to look up a rhyme or or, or read some uh, literature or some poetry and get it quick at my fingertips. But you're only a, a hand's breadth away from social media and your email and all these other things. And so the last year and all the songs on this album, I sat out on my porch with a journal and a cup of coffee and sometimes a cigar and, and no resources other than what was already in my head uh, to write. So I, I typically try to get a, a melody first 
and some so that I have an idea of of what I'll be trying to fit words inside, you know, a, a cadence or a phrasing, and and then once I have that, I set the guitar down and and put pen to paper. Uh, I don't usually set out to say I want to write a song about this or about that. Um, I don't really know what the song is about until the first couple lines come, and then I wonder what in the world I'm talking about. And, and I, I, I wonder if it's that way for people who write books, uh, who write novels, uh, who write poems. If you start talking before you know what you're saying. Um, but for me, that's how it is. Uh, the forming of the melody involves a lot of singing gibberish and words that aren't even really words, um, just as I'm trying to, trying to come up with a melody that, that I like. Oh, this is so interesting to hear you explain. <laughs> Let's put it to an example. A standout track from the album is Daring You to Fall in Love With Me. It begins with just you and acoustic guitar mm -hmm. and then slowly builds to a full band. Tell me what you love to do so I can say I love that too. I just need to buy a little time. We could talk about your mom and dad or that one good thing that ended bad. I want to hear whatever's on your mind. Hearts are broken all the time. Your only one is hard to find. There's loneliness as far as we can see. But the journey of a million miles begins if I can make you smile. So I'm daring you to fall in love with me. The song seems to draw from a few different genres. Would you tell us about your influences as a musician? Sure. I grew up listening to what my parents listened to and uh, riding around in the station wagon. You just, you, you listened to what was on the radio and my dad taught me to play the guitar. So then I, I learned, the first songs I learned were, were the songs that he, he taught me by the Beatles and, and Elvis and the Monkees and uh, people like that. But I always loved songwriters that, 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 that seemed to be saying something uh, really meaningful. And, and I guess that's a relative uh, term because it's meaningful to, that's in the eye of the beholder. But so I fell in love with James Taylor and Jackson Brown and, and later on Tom Petty and and these days it's singer songwriters like Ben Rector and uh, Dave Barnes and uh, the Indigo Girls have been 25 year influences on me um, coming out of Atlanta, coming out of Eddie's Attic like I have. Uh, that particular song, I went for a run in the morning and, and I was listening to a friend of mine, Grant Partrick, uh, had a podcast and he was talking about meeting his wife and he went to a party because he knew she was going to be there and he wanted to ask her out, um, but he hates parties. And so we only went in there to, to walk in, ask her out and leave. And I thought it was a funny story. And I got back from the run and sat down and again, didn't really know what I was going to write about. And before I knew it, I was singing the words. Um, I hate the party atmosphere, uh, but I heard that I might find you here. 
uh, and, and I realized I was writing a song from, from a story I had just heard. The title, Daring You to Fall in Love With Me, came from a Pat Conroy book. He's probably my favorite uh, novelist. And it's in the first chapter of Beach Music where his wife is, they're high school sweethearts and she leans into his ear and says, I dare you to fall in love with me, Jack. And uh, I'm like, that was, I felt like that was a beautiful phrase. Oh, yes. The track first and last begins with you telling the audience the meaning behind this song. Mike, do you consider one of your roles as a musician that of a storyteller? I, I hope so. I, I love to tell a story. Um, I don't remember who said it, but they said, you know, we love to know that we're not alone. And I think I talk and I write and I play to to feel less alone. And so when I can tell a story like we are talking right now, um, or w whether I'm singing the story, I feel a connection with, with the people um, that are listening. And, and it hopefully it makes both of us feel less alone in this life. Uh, so yes, absolutely. What is the story behind Dance With Me? <laughs> Dance with me is a is a straight up lie, um, because it, the story uh, in the song is that that a couple are at a show together and and the music is 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 moving him to this romantic moment and he says, "All right, get up, let's dance." You're glowing like a candle, all warm and bright. You just keep watching the band. I'm watching you tonight. You flash that thousand watt smile in my direction. It sets me on fire with joy at love's resurrection. When the music plays, I know what I should do. I feel the time is right. I'm gonna make a move. Won't you dance, dance, dance with me? Get on up. And uh, that did happen uh, at a Steve Mokler show um, in, in, in Decatur and people were getting up spontaneously and dancing and I, I, I'm not a dancer and I don't really enjoy dancing. I feel awkward, but I, I felt like it was my moment and I got up and I, and I placed my hand on Lindsay's shoulder and, and she looked up and said, no. <laughs> oh. So I think it was more out of pity for me because she knew I was um, awkward and don't really like to dance. She felt like I was doing it for her. Um, so, but it was a, it was a funny moment. I humbly sat back in my seat, <laughs> but I did get a song out of it. So that's... there you go. It was not a total waste. <laughs> Actually, it was an investment, if you will. Exactly. I came home and thought I'm going to write a song. So I can tell that story about her every time. Mike, you were born here in Atlanta. You live in Macon now. Yes, ma'am. How has our region influenced you as a musician? I, I moved around the first 12 years of my life almost every year. So I've lived in Florida and Tennessee and Missouri and Arkansas, Virginia. And I um, made it back to Georgia um, right before high school. And 
So I didn't grow up with an identity of being a Southerner um, until I was maybe a 14, 15 year old. And, and that was around the time I fell in love with music as well. And so to realize you're surrounded by, by a, an environment that has such a musical culture all to itself it's definitely shaped my my taste for music my the where the bar is living in macon right now the home of the allman brothers and and otis redding uh i feel like i'm surrounded by the spirit of great music um and and coming out of atlanta with with so many great acts from the indigo girls to rem to the b-52s it just it's a huge inspiration for me as a musician to try to carry some of that spirit forward in my own music I see you have an upcoming gig. Please tell us about it. I did just get a gig yesterday, but on a week from a week from Thursday, uh, that's October first. I'll be playing in the Covington Square um, from noon to one. And that will be outdoors and exactly safe and socially distant. Exactly. It'll be the first time I've gotten up in front of people to play since the since the Eddie's show back in January. But I'm uh, happy that it will be safe and and distant and, and in the open air. And with real people live in person. Yes, yes. I'm. Uh, I think as many of us are, I'm virtual concert and zoomed out in terms of, you know, playing live music. Uh, on Facebook or Instagram, it's uh, it was it was good for a while, but I think we all got a little fatigued by doing it. Oh yes, Mike Kinnebrew, it has been a joy talking with you and hearing your music. Of course, best of luck with one way to find out, and here's to live performance much more often in the not too distant future. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to talk to you, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Mike Kinnebrew's new album, One Way to Find Out, drops today. In a moment, visual artists unite to fight world hunger through the Safe Hands Art Initiative. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. In April... The World Food Program reported that the number of people facing acute hunger would double by the end of 2020. The Atlanta-based nonprofit Safe Hands Company has begun to fight this crisis. The Safe Hands Artist Series went live earlier this month 
in order to raise funds for people facing food insecurity. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with co-founder Christy Woods and Atlanta artist Yo-Yo Farrow. Here, Christy explains why the organization was created. We really came together to start creating innovative solutions to some of the problems that we've seen caused by the pandemic. So a a big part of that is obviously what we're seeing happening to the, the population facing acute food insecurity, a population that's expected to double this year. Um, And with world hunger already being one of the number one world killers, we definitely wanted to make sure that we had a program in mind that could help service this community. So Safe Hands was just created this year? It was, exactly. So um, our core offering is really re-entry research. um, And we also created a color system that helps you communicate your comfort level with interaction as well as your home risk level when you return to the workplace or, or to church or to your school. Can you actually talk about that color system and what each of the colors mean? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, early on in the pandemic, we noticed how awkward interactions could be between neighbors and friends and coworkers, even your family. Um, I'm sure you could think of a, a couple examples yourself. So, you know, we were noticing that there are government guidelines that tell us how to ant- enter an exit and how to stand in line. But the reality was the real world is throwing hundreds of situations at us daily that aren't covered by any system and where, you know, six feet and perfect sanitation are not possible, aren't practical and aren't natural. And that was creating a lot of fear and confusion and um, inherent liabilities. So our system really facilitates interpersonal communication based on your comfort level with interaction. So it's three different colors. Um, The first color you would wear um, or display if your home is at risk, and that is orange. The second color is blue, is what you would wear or display if you are seeking space and just hoping to maximize the space between you and others around you. And then green is a color that you would wear when you are feeling um, and you are in an environment where you are more comfortable interacting. So you might be going and getting together with family, you might be you know, going on a walk and that might be a situation where you would wear green. So we noticed that people don't necessarily wanna have this conversation with every interaction that they have and a simple color system could facilitate that for them. And earlier this month, your company launched the Safe Hands Artist Series. Can you tell us about this initiative and how you developed a partnership with Rise Against Hunger? Absolutely. Um, So as I mentioned, you know, we were seeing really high levels of food insecurity, almost the highest in 20 years. And, And you may have seen that, you know, children, that they are being affected by the pandemic, too, with that many kids being out of school. We're seeing 320 million um, children facing hunger because of closed schools. So the artist series um, was created really to help raise awareness uh, of this issue so that these communities and individuals had a voice. And then um, in second part was to, to raise funds. And so we are partnering with artists like Yo-Yo Farrow, um, like Greg, and, and Emmy and Steffi to, to raise that money 
We did a lot of research in charities that are responding to the call and Rise Against Hunger. Um, they're doing an excellent job with their COVID relief. So they are, you know, they have food distribution efforts. They're providing short-term grants for communities to purchase local food and also empowering communities through sustainable agriculture. So it was a natural fit for us and they were excited to have the partnership as well. And these other artists that you mentioned, Steffi and Greg, these are from other states outside of Georgia who also partnered with you guys. That's correct. Um, so Greg, Greg Mike, he's a good friend of mine um, and he lives in Atlanta, but you know, he owns the, the agency ABV, who's connected to artists all over the country and really the world. And so Greg and his team helped us put together a team of artists who, you know, we knew would be interested in this type of program and could help us, you know, with their platform and their amazing work. And as you mentioned, Yo-Yo, you are one of the artists, a part of this series. Can you describe what your artwork looks like? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm, a, I'm based here in Atlanta as well. I'm originally from the countryside of Brazil, Sao Paulo State. And my artworks are mostly very colorful, abstract paintings and murals and illustrations. And even though it's like an abstract, I always, I always try to depict some emotional situation with my characters in it. So it's very, it's always very challenging to portray a certain emotion with a character that has no face, no hands or no eyes or mouth, you know, so it's a, it's a lot of body language, but very colorful, very colorful artworks. And people can see your artwork throughout Atlanta. I mean, you have these giant murals uh, just on the corner of buildings and stuff. If somebody wanted to see it while walking around Atlanta, can you tell our listeners where they could find them? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I pretty much have murals spread out all over town. But I would say from College Park, from south to north, you know, I think pretty much all over Atlanta. But if you want to really see a list of all my murals with addresses, because I know people like to go for some type of art hunt in, in town, you can go to my website, yoyofero.com, and you'll have all the addresses there. But I live in Grand Park area, so my neighborhood has a bunch of a bunch of my murals around here, Cabbage Town, Grand Park. So what are the works that you are commissioning for this initiative? Since you do mural work, I know you can't necessarily sell a mural on a wall. So what are you selling with this partnership? Oh, yeah. I mean, with the pandemic, artists have to use their creativity in other ways as well. You know, like I'm not doing commercial work as much going to people's offices to paint murals, but I'm doing more outside work and also digital digital works. So for Safe Hands, I created a digital artwork that we turned into a print and it's called Até Problemão Tem Solução. This is a, it's a Portuguese title that translates to something along the lines of you can find a solution to the biggest of the problems, the biggest problems. So it kind of depicts this character, this like David and Goliath type of type of situation where you're faced with a big challenge in front of you. I mean, food insecurity is, it's, it's crazy to think that this is a, it's a problem in a, in a first world country, you know? So it's a, I'm, I'm very happy to be able to use my art to help that way, you know? As you mentioned, artists and creatives are having to get even more creative due to this pandemic. And they have been among those who have been hit the hardest financially due to this pandemic. 
Why did you want to partner with Safe Hands in order to donate 50% of your proceeds to Rise Against Hunger? I mean, most people don't know, but artists donate a lot of their work for not even 50%, for 100%, you know? So we, I get so many requests for, hey, can you donate art for this charity so we can raise money? Yes. So we are always donating things. This especially was organized by ABV Gallery, ABV Agency, which uh, Greg Mike is the founder. And they always do good work. So I, I really wanted to be part of this. Um, I mean, I, I like to make art to put smiles in people's faces. But when you can do that, plus give people food, it's a, I think it's a big deal. It's a very cool, cool thing to be part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You guys both mentioned ABV a few times. Can you talk about what ABV does and how they worked with Safe Hands Company? Yes, absolutely. So ABV really, you know, because of our friendship, we got together with them. They are kind of the premier agency for artist-driven design and activations. Again, they are founded by Greg Mike. They're here in Atlanta. And so ABV is the team that really rounded up the artists and helped us helped us to launch this series. The Safe Hands Company, our founding members, we of course love artwork and love seeing it come to life, but they really know the ins and outs and how to make this successful and promote it well and, and make sure that we have the right artists on board. So they were a huge partner in this effort. And what does ABV stand for? ABV stands for a better view. And Christy, can you talk about some of the other artists who are participating around the country? First, what was the selection process like for selecting these artists? And what do the artworks look like outside of yo-yos? ABV really helped us with the selection of the artists. Number one, you know, had they worked with the artists before and, you know, had they been involved in some sort of charitable project before um, that helped us with that initial conversation. And then we wanted to make sure that the artwork would vary um, so that we could appeal to a broader audience, of course. Um, So they really did a nice job selecting three artists for this initial wave. So Yo-Yo, of course, um, who's in Atlanta, and and obviously we're from Atlanta, so we're super excited about him and his work. And then Steffi Lynn, she's from Texas, originally from Austin, um, now lives in New York. And her style, she's kind of like a hand letter and illustrator, um, but she also does murals as well. She actually did a really beautiful print of a flower bouquet for us. It's something that I already ordered that's going to be hanging in the bathroom in my house. It's beautiful. Um, Definitely check it out. It's nice, bright pops of colors. And all of her artwork, a lot of it says, um, have a nice day, um, which is just a nice message and kind of puts a smile on your face when you wake up. And then Emmy Star Brown, she is from Chicago and she does a lot of typographic artwork. Um, and her artwork is, it's beautiful. It says, um, the time is always right to do what's right. And it has nice um, dark shades of blue and, and it, it really pops and obviously is a really nice message in this time. Um, so we're really happy with kind of the three pieces and how they round it out. Mm-hmm. It definitely seems like a message of unity in this time of division and fear. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so how can viewers purchase these works? So they can visit um, safehandscompany.com. We have an artist series page. Um, all three prints are available until next Wednesday, September 30th. And then two of 
of our artists, Yo-Yo and Steffi, also have their prints available on t-shirts. So you can check those out as well. Do you know if Safe Hands will be doing any more initiatives like this one in the foreseeable future? Yes, um, we definitely plan on continuing the artist series and we're looking for different ways that that can come to life. It could be a concert, it could be um, an art class that you could take online, but definitely with all of the, as much proceeds as possible going towards um, food insecurity. So we're kind of taking a look at what Safe Hands Artist Series 2.0 might look like. Christy Woods, co-founder of the Safe Hands Company with Atlanta-based artist Yo-Yo Ferro and City Lights producer Summer Evans. The Safe Hands Artist Series runs through September 30th. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Karen Singer, better known as Tiny Doors ATL, and Atlanta educator Kira Sampson devised a lesson plan to engage kids of all ages in creating outdoor art. They joined me to discuss their online lesson program and also to talk about how Tiny Doors ATL got its start. So I graduated from art school in 2013, and that's when I moved to Atlanta. And I was really impressed by, of course, Atlanta's amazing art scene and the big, beautiful murals. And I've always been into public art and interested in miniatures and decided to combine my love of those things, but bring in that new element. So I've heard of fairy doors before, of course, but wanted to bring in this element of reflecting the environment around it. So when I make a door, the first one was at the Crog Street Tunnel. I made it to look and feel like the Crog Street Tunnel. It was six years ago and it had tiny graffiti on it. And that door is still there. And just like the Crog Street Tunnel, it changes. So I try to keep them alive and I do constant maintenance. And one of the things that's always been important to me is accessibility. And that's what public art is about. So, you know, when we talk about it, I, it is important to me that we create accessible art for all. Kara, please tell us about your background as an artist and art teacher. Absolutely. I grew up in a family of artists. Everybody has their own little thing. And it wasn't until I was in college that I had my public speaking professor assign a project to us to find something we're passionate about. And I began doing research. And at the time, I was going to school to become an elementary educator. But I came across, um, this was back in the early 2000s, that the arts were being pulled out of the school system because of funding and the recession. And it just really rocked me because I realized theater and painting is what got me going to school every single day. Um, so in that moment, I chose to jump into a career that was obviously being defunded um, with the passion to make sure that the art was happening in the schools. Since that journey began, I have been able to teach in Brooklyn, New York, in Los Angeles, and now here in Atlanta and teaching art. And um, I love being able to bring it into the school system every single day. And I'm glad it still exists. What exactly 
goes into the lesson plan. With the lesson plan, as we were talking about it, I really wanted to get into the mind of Karen of how this would look in people's homes and in their communities. So as we were talking and she's coming from the artist perspective, I'm trying to line it up into the actual plan that will be delivered. And really it came down to is allowing these children and these families to enhance and show off their own neighborhood, their own door, their own community. So taking Karen's beautiful way of doing that in neighborhoods with the tiny doors and bringing that into everybody's home. So that's really how we kind of looked at this from a big scope. And then we zeroed in on just the different tools that they could use to create this image. So tell us about the art project, the lesson plan asks students to create. So what we wanted to do, it starts off with a video that I made. I am the artist in residence for Atlantic Station. So I used my neighborhood, which is Atlantic Station, and just took chalk and sat outside. And what the lesson focuses on is observing. So I'm looking around, I'm just seeing the shape of the particular streetlights in my neighborhood. I'm seeing shopping bags from people walking around. I'm seeing, you know, the brickwork that's around me. Really, they can feel like minute details, but they add up to the architecture of your neighborhood. And that creates a feeling when people walk by, they're seeing something familiar. It can feel like their own door, even if it isn't exactly theirs. Hmm. So we focus on that. We really start with observing and then using chalk to create. So you are asking kids to create the door with chalk outdoors. Yes. Yes. That's what we're doing. And I, what I really enjoy about that is, you know, Kira has experience in lots of different types of districts. And we wanted to do something that a child who's living in an apartment can do and a child who's living, you know, in a five bedroom home. We wanted it to be someone that was accessible to students with different materials and in different neighborhoods. And chalk and sidewalk was a really easy common denominator. Atlanta arts educator Kira Sampson and Karen Singer, principal artist and director, better known as Tiny Doors ATL. More information on how to access their free arts lesson plan is on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. The Atlanta Contemporary and Dance Canvas have partnered to provide time and space to dance artists in Metro Atlanta. A goal of the initiative is to support and amplify diverse voices. There will be performances this weekend. Veronica Kasnick is the executive director of the Atlantic Contemporary. She joins us now with Angela Harris, the executive artistic director of Dance Canvas. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. How did the partnership between your organizations come about? 
we both Atlanta Contemporary and Dance Canvas have both been included in the cohort of organizations in the Audience Building Roundtable, which has been an initiative of the Arthur M. Blank Family Foundation for quite some time. So we've we've seen each other a lot in person for numerous meetings. And when COVID and the pandemic really took hold and we all had to shelter in place, we were having those meetings instead of in person, but on Zoom. And as we all were seeing each other in the Zoom Brady Bunch that we're all familiar with, it became very clear that not only were visual arts organizations struggling to understand a new normal, which I think we're still grappling with, but performance-based organizations were as well. And I had this kind of wild idea. We have a 30,000 square foot campus here at Atlanta Contemporary on the west side, and we have an open air pavilion that is an asset that is underutilized. And I saw Angela on a Zoom call and called her pretty quickly. Um, and this was also as the continued fight for racial justice and anti-racist work was being even further promoted. And I called Angela and kind of said, so I have this crazy idea and she said yes and we iterated pretty quickly and came up with a plan and identified jurors and put out a call for choreographers and the rest as you say is history now the selected choreographers began their residency at the atlanta contemporary in late july angela please Tell us about the dancers and choreographers practicing at the pavilion. Well, one of the biggest challenges for choreographers that aren't necessarily affiliated with companies and are independent artists is the ability to have space for both rehearsals and performances. So we were thrilled at the chance to have this very um, unique beautiful, inspiring space at the Atlanta Contemporary to work. When we put out the call for choreographers, we did make a specific ask that the choreographers really think about their voices during this time, what they wanted to say, what they were having difficulties finding the words for, and also what they dreamt about creating to tell their stories. And so we were thrilled to find eight choreographers, all with very unique voices about issues that are impacting the Black community, issues that have surfaced in this time where they were in the house and unable to see and be around other people, and also things that may have been weighing on their minds for a while, and this just provided them with an artistic outlet to share and create. And the works are really beautiful. We talked about the vastness of the Contemporary's campus with 30,000 square feet. What does the pavilion look like? The pavilion is an exterior structure that has no roof. It has 
uh, floating I-beams that, you know, were where the roof would be. And it has a rugged poured concrete floor. And one of the things that Angela and I discussed was whether or not the artists would want a Marley floor. And they all said no. And I'll, if, if Angela wants to talk about the, the dancers with that, um, they're dancing on the rough hewn open air pavilion space. It's around 6,700 square feet. Wow. Wait, Angela, <laughs> dancers on, on concrete? How, how are their feet? <laughs> you know, it, in terms of dance floors, it isn't, it isn't the traditional ideal floor for dancers. The concrete is hard. It's hard to get down on it and roll on it and do things like that on it as well. And we completely gave the choreographers the option of how they wanted to exist in the space. The thing that was great, I think, for the dancers and choreographers, because they are the ones that came up with it, is that this really was an exercise in site-specific choreography. So the dancers did take into account that they were dancing on concrete and how that would impact the movements that they created, um, impact how they interacted with the floor. Um, there's not a whole lot of floor work that goes on. And also the shoes that they wear. Most of them put their dancers in um, sneakers or tennis shoes or something like that. And it gives it a, a um, almost um, a more pedestrian quality to the movement. Um, I, I think all of the pieces are really relatable um, in terms of um, that we're seeing, quote unquote, real people doing these extraordinary dances. My goodness, it is interesting to hear how bold they are about, I would think, the fear of knee injuries or a, a fall on the concrete would be very scary, but I, this is where the creativity of the choreographer comes in, as you said, if they are creating the works with the concrete floor in mind. How are you able to accommodate the safety of the artists in order to follow CDC guidelines? You know, with respect to following CDC guidelines, Atlanta Contemporary has been open since July 7th. And so we've been working very hard to ensure our campus and our space in place are safe for our visitors. And so the dancers and the choreographers have set their own strict guidelines that I'll let Angela speak to. But when we, a few weeks back, decided to open to the public and have ticketed entry, we limited capacity to no more than 25 people. Uh, we socially distanced and socially bubbled seats and everyone is still required to wear masks. So it's an outdoor open space and place. And, you know, I think people are getting good at ensuring that they themselves are following guidelines, but they're also desperate and starved for beauty and transcendence and opportunities to see something that elevates them out of their own day to day that, you know, it was something that we simply had to do and had to work through and accommodate. Angela, what about the dancers? Are, are they doing solos? Are, are they socially distanced? 
So we, we definitely, um, even as we were brainstorming what this residency would be, uh, the COVID precautions were at the forefront of, of our de decision making. So all of the choreographers created either solo or duet works. Uh, that meant that no more than three people were ever on site at the same time. Um, Dance Canvas was lucky enough to be part of another cohort that I believe was um, generated out of the cohort organizations within the audience building roundtable as well. Um, Actors Express initiated a partnership with Emory School of Nursing and Dance Canvas was one of the organizations that the Emory School of Nursing looked at and actually gave us um, recommendations based on our rehearsal and performance needs. So we did follow their guidelines in terms of rehearsing outdoors. All dancers were in masks. The ability for the dancers to touch within a piece was very limited. Um, even in the duets that you will see, there is very little, if not any touch within the pieces, which is a another wonderful choreographic challenge. <laughs> um, but we, we did take into account all of the safety precautions to ensure that our artists are, were well taken care of during these past two months. Oh, wow, such considerations. I mean, coronavirus choreography, who would ever have imagined these constraints? The performances feature works by artists responding to the COVID-19 shutdown and, as we mentioned, also addressing issues of racism and inequality. One of the presentations has been through Dance Canvas's online series, Choreo Chat. Would you tell us about that, Angela? I would say the big challenges when the shutdowns occurred um, was that we are not in the online content creation business. <laughs> um, we did not have um, even a YouTube channel at that point in time. And we were in the midst of our major annual performance being shut down. So we wanted to figure out a way to bring our choreographers' stories to life um, and still stay true to our mission. We also are in a really challenging position in that Dance Canvas, um, we do not own the rights to our choreographers' work. We do that purposefully because we want our choreographers to um, have ownership of the art that they create. And so when the shutdowns happened, we approached eight of our past choreographers and we decided to create an interview series so that our audiences could get to know basically what goes on in the process of choreographers from in, uh, concept to performance and also how the shutdowns are affecting artists in their lives. The final presentations will be showcased this weekend. What can you tell us about them and who will be performing? You will see works by um, Tulani Vereen, Xavier Damar, Per Elizabeth de Leon, Nadia Zitlin, Xavier Lewis, Tamara Irving, Jessica Bertram, and oh, I'm sorry, Danielle Swatsy. 
And they're beautiful pieces. They're solos and duets. And the choreographers actually participate in a question and answer uh, session at the end. So audiences can ask them questions about their process and their time in the residency. And I'll say too, Lois, that, you know, during this time and the last two months, it's been just magnificent to have bodies moving in space on the pavilion. We, we put up a sign because of course, as I said, we're open to the public and people were walking up to the dancers and, and curious about what they're doing. And it's just, I think we're all having various different existential crises around how to live every single day. And I say this when we, when we do our introduction, but art is essential to who we are as, as humans and as people and as, as participants in this community. And it's, it's really enlightening to have these artistic voices present new works for us and for our audiences. Zero file. That's spelled X-E-R-O-P-H-I-L-E. A local film production studio is making a documentary about the residency. What can you tell us about the film? Yeah, I'm actually, this is an exciting thing that um, kind of just happened. And it's, it's turning out to be a really great way that we can continue to share the work that happened during the residency. Um, but again, in, in thinking about what content we could create to put online, um, one of the ideas that came to mind was um, a documentary um, that could go behind the scenes a little bit. Um, I've, <laughs> the idea kind of came from the fact that I've been in the house watching a lot of Netflix documentaries. <laughs> 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 and I figured that um, this might be a fun way to um, share all the um, all the work that goes behind the performances. Um, so we're thrilled that this will be a way for us to kind of continue on with the residency post our time at the Contemporary. It has been wonderful to hear your exuberance and your your commitment to creating in spite of a deadly virus. Angela Harris, Veronica Kessenick, thank you so very much. Thank you, Lois. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Our theme music is The First Time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are City Lights producers. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Hope you have a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.